Uh, this morning we have three scriptures. The first one is out at First Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. For just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, dis- we bestow the, greatest honor, the greater honor, that our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that it lacked, it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The second reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to to your own husbands as to the Lord. For if the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And the final reading is from Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give up 
give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let's pray. My Father, I have nothing to bring before you today but weakness and brokenness and sinfulness and imperfections. I have nothing in myself to commend myself to you. But I delight to confess these things to you, Lord, because you love to take weakness and display your strength. You love to take foolishness and display your wisdom. You love to take imperfection and display your perfection. And so I pray that you would do that now. I pray that you would fill this broken body and mind and spirit with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would use me as your own mouthpiece this morning. And I pray that you would spread your wisdom abroad among your people. And I pray that you would fill us the joy, fill us with the joy of seeing what it is that you're up to in the church. Oh, how I love you and how I delight in the many meditations that have eventually ended up in this sermon. And how I delight in the privilege of speaking it now. Please, Lord, help me as I speak and help all of us as we listen. Come now and glorify your name, I pray, in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are resuming our series on Koinonia this morning, and I want to begin by saying a word to you about why the elders want to bring this series at this time of the life of our church, and what our motives are, what our thoughts are, in bringing it in the particular way that we're bringing it before you. As those who have been granted the immense privilege of serving the blood-pot people of God, we do have a heart for this church, for glory of Christ, to come more into the fullness of what it means to be a church. We do have a longing for us to learn what it means to do life together with one another for the glory of Christ, to love each other as our Father has loved us. We think that Our church is in a stage of transition from crawling to walking, if you will, and we feel like one of the crucial pieces of that transition is learning what it means to do life in Christ together in the context of this culture, which I admit freely is challenging. To love Jesus Christ is to love those who also love Jesus Christ. Amen? John has said in his letter in 1 John that whoever loves the brothers, displays the fact that he or she also loves God. And whoever does not walk in love toward fellow believers, displays the fact that he or she has never seen God, does not know God, that the truth does not abide in him or her, that the word does not abide in him or her. Beloved, loving one another in Jesus Christ is no small thing. It really is central to what it means to be a Christian. And it's central to what it means to become a church. And so the elders of the church felt it a good thing and even a necessary thing to spend several months, in fact, talking about this subject in a, in a public way. Now, having said that, we could have approached this series by simply dealing directly with practical issues that relate to the life of Koinonia. In other words, we could have brought a, a, a series on small group life and tried to persuade each of you to join a small group. Or we could have brought a series of messages on spiritual gifts and how they function and why you should discover your gifts and employ your gifts 
for the good of the life of the church. We could have talked about prayer or worship or family life or missions or evangelism or many other things and tried to show you how those things should be conceived in communal terms and not just individualistic terms. And indeed, eventually, we're going to get to these practical things because they need to be talked about. However, if we were to start with the practical things and end with the practical things, we would have robbed you of much joy in Christ. And here's why. The joy of koinonia is found in the why of koinonia. It's not enough just to join a small group. The joy is found in why you should join a small group. It's not enough to know that you should discover and employ your spiritual gifts. The joy is found in knowing why you should do those things. It's not enough to just engage in prayer and worship and missions and evangelism and all the activities of the life of the church. The true joy is found in knowing why you should do all of these things. You see, it's one thing to engage in an activity because leaders who love you have asked you to do that. And because you love them, and more importantly, because you love God, you submit and and you engage in those things. That's one thing. But it is a much better thing to come to understand what your Father is up to in the life of the church and then to want to join in what He is doing from the inside out. It is a joy to just submit to the wisdom of God. It's a higher joy to know why He's calling you to submit to that wisdom and to submit to it because you want to, not because you feel like you're supposed to. At the pastor's conference this week, one of the speakers uh, shared that C.S. Lewis had said that when you do things in the Christian life merely out of a sense of duty, you ruin Christianity. Christianity is not merely about duty. It's about love, you see? And so when you see what your Father is doing and you understand that He's doing all of it in love, you just grow in this desire to want to join Him in what He's doing. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I've heard the Father say. And the reason is because His joy was to live in fellowship with God. The real joy of koinonia is in knowing what our Father is up to and joining Him in those things. So this is why we have approached this series by beginning with theological logical things. We're trying to give you as a people and us as pastors a glimpse into the why of what God is doing in forming the church in the way that He is. We may be succeeding in this, we may not be, but I just wanted to be really clear with you, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to lead the church to think about what our Father is up to and then later how we can join in with him. So with that in mind, let me just quickly summarize for you three lessons that we learned from my earlier sermons. It's been three weeks since I preached on this subject, and so just want to take a couple minutes and bring us back up to speed on, on a couple of things. First of all, the word koinonia itself, if you'll remember, is built off a word that means common. And so the word koinonia essentially means a commonness of life, and because our connection is is profoundly in Jesus Christ, Koinonia for us is a commonness of life in Christ. Since I am in Christ, and since you who believe are in Christ, therefore you and I share all the greatest things of life in common. We have everything in common because we have Christ in common. And this fact extends from everyone who's ever believed to everyone else who has ever believed. All who believe in Jesus Christ are one in Jesus Christ. That's koinonia. 
This leads to the second thought, namely, that since our koinonia is rooted in Christ, our koinonia is rooted in love. And I say that because the Father sent the Son in love. Jesus Christ laid His life down, not because He had to, but because He wanted to. He did it in love. God the Father calls us to Himself in love. He shapes us into the image of Christ in love. He has promised to complete the work that He began in us in love. He has said, the devil will not stop me. I will form all of you who believe into my image. Nothing will stop me. Hallelujah. And He's done that in love. Life in Christ is life in love, period. And therefore for us, koinonia is all about love. It's so crucial that we get this, beloved. Really what koinonia is, is the love of our Father operating among His people. It's the love of God flowing through His people, to His people, and then back to Him in a never-ending cycle. Koinonia, life in Christ, is all about love. Now, that truth is profound enough, but when you probe deeper into the heart of that truth, things become even more profound, because the height of koinonia is this. Through Jesus Christ... God the Father is inviting everyone who believes into the very fellowship of the Trinity. He is inviting us into the eternal light of God in God. From all eternity and for all eternity, the Father has loved the Son and the Son has loved the Father and everything in creation has flowed out of this fundamental love. And the mind-blowing thing about the doctrine of koinonia is that God designed from before the foundation of the world to redeem sinners like us and invite us through Jesus Christ into that fellowship. So the height of koinonia is the enjoyment of God with God. And I promise you that contemplating that fact, especially through texts like John 17, will lead you to worlds of joy. I really mean that. I'm not just being preacherly and idealistic. I mean that. There is so much joy for us in the contemplation of what God is doing. So go to John 17 and just think about it. And the joy of the Father in these things is not like the joy of the Super Bowl or of fishing or of hunting or of raising a family or of listening to your iPod or hanging out with your friends or any other earthly joy. The joy of God and what He's doing in Christ and in the church is an eternal joy that will not fade away. It might be tested, might not always be easy, but I promise you that true joy will never fade away. Now I do pray that God will help glory of Christ to work out the practical aspects of koinonia in the months and years to come. This will be an ongoing project for as long as this church exists. It's just always something we have to work at. I do pray that He would teach us more and more day by day what it means to love one another as He has loved us to forgive each other, to defer to each other, to encourage each other, to listen to each other, to serve each other. I pray that He would do all of that in us. But more than that, I pray that He'd give us eyes to see why He's working these things in us. He's doing profound things right in our midst. 
This is not just an abstract thing. It's happening right in front of our eyes. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? And I promise you, if you will plead with the Father until you get those eyes to see it, your joy will be very, very high in Him. And you will want to participate in the things that He's doing. It will come from your heart. So now, we've made a transition in the series. We're looking now at several important metaphors for the church in the Bible, and here's why. If you look at the metaphors in the Bible for the church, what you get is a glimpse into the very mind of God as to how He thinks about the church. So, when I ask you a question like, what is the church? I don't know what comes to your mind. I don't know what kind of thoughts or images come to your head when you think about the church. But when we contemplate the metaphors for the church in the Bible, we get a glimpse into how God thinks about the church. And that is crucially important that we do that. So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Kevin talked about the household of God. And today, I want to talk with you about the body and the bride of Christ. Those images for the church. And my main aim this morning is to show you how the metaphor of the body of Christ and the metaphor of the bride of Christ are in fact one metaphor. The two sides of a coin. So please, let's start by turning back to 1 Corinthians 12. I want to just take a few minutes in each of the passages that Asa read for us. And thanks Asa for reading such so much scripture for us this morning. But I want to start with 1 Corinthians 12. Paul writes this chapter, as most of you know, and the two chapters that follow, in fact, to help the Corinthian church understand the purpose of spiritual gifts. Now, there are some churches that need a lot of instructions about the reality of spiritual gifts and the practice of spiritual gifts. But the church in Corinth was not one of those churches. They absolutely believed in the reality of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they were experts, so to speak, in the practices of those gifts. Just read what Paul said in chapter 1 sometime. You'll see Paul commended them for their love of the spiritual gifts. But what they needed was instruction about the point of spiritual gifts, because they had that all out of whack. They got that wrong. And so Paul, as a loving, pastoral man of God, was helping them see So he begins in verses 1 through 11 by saying several things, which in my view are best summarized in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is a crucial sentence. To me it's the most important sentence in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And I see three particularly important lessons here. First of all, the Spirit's gifts are given to each and every Christian. Spiritual gifts are not the purview of elite Christians, of more advanced Christians. Every single person, no matter how young or old you are, if you are in Christ, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in some way, shape, or form. I'm one who believes that those giftings can change over time. Just because you've been given a particular gift this month doesn't mean it'll be the same gift next month. But one thing that remains the same is that if the Holy Spirit lives in you, His gifts will be given to you for the glory of God and the good of the church. Second major thing that we see in this text is that the gifts are in fact visible manifestations of the invisible Spirit of God who gave those gifts. Please see this. The gifts are not an end in themselves. They are a pointer to the Holy Spirit who gave those gifts. 
And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't look to the gifts in themselves. Don't pursue the gifts in themselves. Don't make much of the gifts in themselves. Even in our culture today, so much of the problem with the teaching on spiritual gifts is, is the gifts themselves are almost made an idol. Don't do that. Don't do that. Look to the giver of those gifts and make much of the giver. Because every single gift is literally a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The third lesson. The reason that the giver gives these gifts is for the common good of the whole church and not for the particular good of any one Christian. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to edify the whole and not to exalt some over the rest. For sure, the Holy Spirit does edify the person who has gifts, every single person who has a gift. And to be sure, He does share with us as individuals something of the joy of those gifts. But what I'm saying is that the main purpose of every spiritual gift is not the exaltation of the individual. Never. The main purpose of any spiritual gift is the edification of the whole body. And so each part has been empowered for the good of the whole. What a beautiful thing. Now this train of thought leads Paul to articulate one of the most important metaphors for the church in all of the Bible, namely, the church as the body of Christ. So let's read again just verses 12, 13, and 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many members. And then Paul goes on to work out some of the details. Hopefully I'll come back and treat some of those details in a few weeks. But for now, I just want to draw your attention quickly to two more verses. Verse 18, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. And then verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So let me now just draw four lessons out of all these verses. First of all, notice that God's design for the church is not to obliterate the individual, but it is to put the individual in proper relationship to other individuals. It's really important that we get that. I've even heard some Christian teachers talk about that the fullness of life in Christ is the total loss of yourself. And that's not true. That's a Buddhist idea. The, the fullness of life in Christ is to come into the fullness of yourself as God intended yourself to be. God created the idea and the reality of the individual and He called that good. He called it good. So His design in the church is not to destroy what He designed his design in the church is to restore what He designed. Because the issue is that because of our sin, our, in, our, our individuality has been twisted. And we have made of individualism something that God never intended. And so His vision in the church is to recreate individuals, yes, but to put them back in proper relationship to other individuals. He never conceived of us as individuals and only individuals. He always conceived of us 
as individuals properly related to others as members of a body. This is the thing that God thinks about when he thinks about the church. Second point, notice especially in verse 13, that the thing that unifies us, that puts us back together in the way God designed us to be put together, is the Holy Spirit himself. So the Holy Spirit of God is the glue that holds us together. It is the tie that binds us. He is the power that causes us to overcome friction, tension, sin, discouragement, any, anything that we could face together. The Holy Spirit Himself is the thing that glues us together. I told you last week about Pastor Paul up there in Northeast India. I was so privileged to get to uh, meet him and get to know him a little bit. He was a violent, carousing Hindu and God snatched him out of that darkness and made him not only into a believer, but he made him into a pastor of a small church and now he's even supervising others that are also pastoring small churches. As John and I and Paul spent a few days together and got to know each other, we really felt like we we bonded so deeply together in Christ. And the reason that happened is because even though we're over here in America and he's eight or so thousand miles away from us, and even though our culture is what it is and his culture is what it is, and they're radically different, you know what? We have drunk of one and the same Spirit. The three of us have nourished our souls for years on the same Word that was breathed out by that Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, as we got to know each other, we just did this with each other. As we were parting, Paul got a little teary-eyed. And he confessed to us that he felt intimidated when he heard that we were coming and that he was going to take a three-day journey with us. Because he's just a simple tribal pastor. He's never had any education. And now here come these big shot Americans with all the resources, with all the education, all this experience. And he was intimidated. But he said, now, after spending three days with you, I feel like we've always known each other. I feel like it's been years and years and years that we've known each other. And John and I very much shared that sentiment with him. Why? Because we drink of one and the same Holy Spirit. And so any two or more Christians that gather, doesn't matter where they're from in the world, this will happen to them. Because the Holy Spirit is the tie that binds us. He is the thing that glues us together and causes us to enter into koinonia with one another. Now number three, look at verse 18. God is the one responsible for arranging the parts of the body according to His own will. God is the one who's called us out of darkness into light, who's restoring us into proper relationship to others. God is the one who's granted us the Holy Spirit. And God is the one who decides what part each of us should play. We don't have the responsibility of building this church. We don't have the responsibility of coming up with what our own roles should be. All we have is the responsibility of submitting to the wisdom of our Father. That's the beginning and the end of what He calls us to do. Jesus could not have been more clear when He said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, He said, I will build my church. I and my, two important words. I Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, the head of the church, the Savior of the world, I will build my church. 
I, along with Kevin, am the founding pastor of this church, and I want to tell you, I have no sense at all that I'm responsible for building it. As I look out into the future, I don't worry about what I'm going to do next, because that's not the relevant question. The relevant question is, what is Jesus Christ doing as He builds His own church? And how can I and Kevin and now Mike, who's joined us as an elder, how can we submit to what He's doing? That's the question. Because God will build His church. And here's the thing that I really hope that we see in this. When God put His mind to building His church, the image that came to His mind was that of a body. Every builder begins building with a design in mind, right? I don't know many builders unless they're artists that just start building and we'll just kind of see what happens. Most builders, almost all builders, begin by designing what they're going to build. And the great builder, when he put his hand to building the church, the design he had in mind was that of a body. He did not conceive of us merely as individuals, but he conceived of us as a gathering of individuals saved by his grace and put into the form of a body. What a beautiful thing. Now the question is, will we submit to his design or not? And I, and I know that your heart is to do that. This leads to my final observation. Namely, notice, especially in verse 27, that Paul does not say we're becoming the body of Christ. He says emphatically, directly, we are the body of Christ. Now, obviously, there are lots of details left to be worked out in the world as to how the church becomes the body. But the important thing for us to see here is that this is a fact in the mind of God. We are already the body of Christ. This is the the, the fact that characterizes our life together. Whether we perceive it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether we submit to it or not, whether we participate or not, we are, in fact, the body of Christ. Everyone who is in Christ is related to everyone else who is in Christ, just like a hand is related to an arm, arm to a shoulder, a shoulder to a neck, to a torso, to the whole body. God has designed the church so that each member has to function in relationship to the others, and so that every part wants to function for the good of the others. This is His design. This is what He is up to as He is building. Now, with all of that in mind, please turn with me now to Ephesians 5. I want to spend just a few minutes in Ephesians 5, beginning in verses 20, well, 22 to 23. And the particular question I want to ask is this. In precisely what way is the church the body of Christ? So we know this is a long-known metaphor for the church, but I want to ask this question. I want to press you to meditate on this. What does it mean exactly to say that we are the body of Christ? In what way precisely are we the body? So look at verse 23 there. Paul writes, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. I want you to notice as we go through this text that the main metaphor, even in Ephesians 5, is not the bride of Christ. The main metaphor in Ephesians 5 is still the body of Christ. And so in verse 28, Paul says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Why, Paul? Because we are members of his body. And 
then it's in that context that Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You can see from the next verse that the fullness of the meaning of Genesis 2.24 is not about husbands and wives. The fullness of the meaning of Genesis 2.24 has to do with Jesus Christ and His church. So again, I ask the question, precisely how is the church the body of Christ? My answer, in the same way that a wife is the body of her husband. Yes, they are two separate individuals, but by the grace of God they have become one. And even in the more intimate aspects of a physical marriage, there is a sense in which they literally become one. And this is a signal of Christ and the church. Marriage is not the point of marriage. Christ and the church is the point of marriage. It's not that the church is ever or will ever be physically or ontologically equivalent with Christ. We will never be Jesus, but by faith the church will become one with Jesus through faith. We will be to Him as a wife to a husband. So let me now put Corinthians and Ephesians 5 together. In Corinthians... We saw that the design of God was to take individual Christians and form us together into one body. Many members, yes, but one singular body. Then in Ephesians 5, we see that the design of God is to take Jesus Christ and His unified bride and marry them together as husband and wife. That is breathtaking. Now, one of the profound things here that really does take my breath away and that caused me yesterday to bow before my Father and worship Him in the secrecy of my heart because I was in a public place, but I really was worshiping Him, is that this is the kind of image that comes to the mind of God when He thinks about the church. When God, your Father, thinks about you, He envisions you as a bride that will marry Jesus Christ. And this is the means by which He will enter us, bring us into the fellowship of the Trinity. Beloved, when the Father brings all of creation to its consummation, when He joins Christ and His bride in holy matrimony forever and ever and ever, we will not be invited into the fellowship of the Trinity as strangers or as sojourners or as orphans or as those who have merely been sinners. Rather, we will partake with God in the delight of God as the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, a very God, and we will be His bride. We will be His body. We will be one with Himself, and we will delight with the Father with Him forever. No angel has ever been brought this close to God, ever. No angel would even ever dare ask to be brought this close to God. Search the Bible. You will not find any kind of language of angels being married to Jesus Christ, who is God. But this is the grace of God in Christ that takes sinners like us and forms us into a bride and marries us to himself. The joining of Jesus Christ and his bride is what I have called the consummation of koinonia. So please turn with me finally to Revelation 19. And I do want to read all of these verses again. This is the fullness of the destiny 
of the church of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Oh, beloved, I pray that you will see that in that final day, the thing that will cause all of heaven and earth to stop, as it were, and to shout with one voice so loud that it sounds like the mightiest roar of any waterfall you've ever heard. It sounds like the thunder of the mightiest peals of thunder that you have ever heard. And with one voice, they will rejoice in the marriage of Jesus Christ and His absolutely gorgeous bride, the church. He will glow with glory. He will glow with grace. He will glow with His goodness. And she will shine bright with her linen, which is the righteous deeds that have been granted to her. And they will be joined together as husband and wife forever and ever and ever. And soon after the marriage ceremony, that husband and that bride will consummate the marriage as they join together by faith in eternal bliss of blessing and worship of love and submission, of planting seeds and bearing much fruit, of breeding the true life that is flows out of that kind of unadulterated love, of sharing in eternal life together that will never diminish in joy, that will never diminish in intensity, but will always and ever and only increase. And beloved, how I pray that you will take the time to meditate on these three texts and let this sink in. This is what God thinks about when He thinks of you, when He thinks of me, when He thinks of the church. He conceives of us as a body being unified together, and together He conceives of us as the bride of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the church, but this is the kind of thing that comes to God's mind when He thinks about the church. And the key to our joy in the life of the church is letting His mind shape our mind. So I want to plead with you, when you walk out the doors today, please don't just enter into the superficiality of American consumeristic culture. Don't do it. Don't do it. Take the time to bathe yourselves in the text we've read today and think about what your Father is doing. I promise you, there is so much joy just waiting there for you if you'll be patient and let your Father teach you. I really do believe the contemplation of these things could change your life. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think they could forever shape your vision of God and of yourself and of the church, and it could literally change your life. So please join with me in not settling for the surfacey things, but plumbing down into the depths with Jesus Christ through His Word. Just a brief aside, and then I'll close the sermon, bring us to a time of communion. I do want to say 
that one of the reasons that I will always lovingly but firmly oppose all distortions of marriage is because the ultimate purpose of every single aspect of marriage, including the sexual aspects of marriage, is the demonstration, the visible demonstration of Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. The ultimate point of marriage is not your marriage. The ultimate point of marriage is to, to display for the world to see how Jesus feels about the church and how the church responds to Jesus. As I was putting the finishing touches on my sermon yesterday, I was sitting in Panera Bread, praying, thinking, hiding in a corner, and these two young men came and sat, came and sat next to me, and I'm pretty sure they were practicing homosexuals, and my heart just broke for them. It really broke for them. I spent the last couple of weeks contemplating the things that I'm trying to share with you now, and the beauty of them was landing on me so deeply, I felt like it was just all glowing in me, and I was so happy to be a Christian, and then there sat these two broken sinners next to me thinking that they were partaking of joy when they were partaking of just the opposite. I love those two people just like I love any other sinner in this world. I think it's a huge mistake to exalt the sin of homosexuality over any other sin. My distortions of human sexuality are just as vile as anybody else's distortions. But I'll tell you, as I sat there, I just prayed for them and I longed for them to come into the fullness of the joy of what God has for them. And it's not that, that's for sure. And so I say again, we as a church and I as a pastor... We have to always lovingly but firmly stand for God's design in marriage and against all distortions of that design. Even if that distortion is inside of me, I have to militate against the distortions that exist in me right now. I have to militate against that in our church. Militate against that in my family. Militate against it in the culture. With love, for sure, but standing firmly. Because the things that marriage and sexuality are trying to display are so beautiful. They are patterns of things to come, you see. You remember in in, uh, Exodus where God told Moses, you must make the, the temple, the tabernacle, exactly as I told you. You must make it exactly according to the pattern. Why? Because the pattern was pointing to something else. And to change the pattern was to distort the metaphor, you see. And so marriage is a pattern pointing to something else. And when you distort the pattern, you defile that something else. And when you defile that something else, you defame God. And we just don't want to do that. And so please join me in trying to bring yourself into the fullness of the beauty of what physical marriage is about, because it's about Jesus ultimately. And that's where our joy will lie. Let's think now about communion. Today is Communion Sunday, and as we did last time, and we'll probably do next time, we thought it best to save the celebration of this to the end of the service so that we could rejoice together in several things. Let me just suggest three things for you. I put this up on the PowerPoint. First of all, let's rejoice together that the things that we've seen today are indeed true. In fact, in in particular, that the consummation of koinonia is the eternal union of Jesus Christ with His bride. And so as you partake of the bread and the blood today, please rejoice with me in the fact of what God is doing. Taking us as sinners, transforming us, and turning us into His bride that He will be pleased to marry and live with forever. Praise God. Number two. 
Let's celebrate the fact that this final consummation is rooted in the body and blood of Jesus Christ because it is His sacrifice on the cross that makes it all possible. We really were sinners only before we came into Christ. And the only thing that has outfitted us to be married to Him is the fact that He died for our sins and sealed His willingness to transform us with His own body and with His own blood. So when you partake of the elements today, I pray that the grace of Jesus will shine upon you and that you will see the fact that His body and His blood have been the things to prepare you for what He has for you in the future. Finally, number three, let's celebrate the fact that because of the grace of God in Christ, our highest joy is now in submitting to His designs. As you come to see what your Father is up to, how could you want to do anything else but submit to what your Father is up to? And so today, taking koinonia is a way of saying, Father, I've seen something of what you're doing, and I want in. I want to play my part today. And so I take this communion as a way of saying, Amen, Father, do with my life whatever you will do with my life.